From National Securities Corporation, it's the Agribusiness Advisor Podcast, where we discuss insights and trends from an investment banking perspective with the investors, corporate leaders, and other stakeholders participating in the industries that grow, process, and market the food that we consume. I'm Ivan Saval, and I oversee the Agribusiness and Food Coverage Group, providing capital markets and financial advisory. All podcast episodes are for informational purposes only and are not to be construed as a solicitation of securities. Any thoughts expressed by myself and or our guests are solely our own and are not those of National Securities Corporation. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Jonathan Webb. He's the CEO and founder of At Harvest. Uh, one of the leading platforms in agriculture today, frankly, that's pushing uh, ag forward, uh, finding new solutions, and meeting sustainability requirements that are going to be needed uh, in the future of agriculture. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining our podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Curious if you could go a little bit into your background. I've been tracking the the controlled environment agricultural uh, movement for some time really watching what's been happening across the uh, the Atlantic over in, in the Netherlands, they seem to really have uh, uh, taken it to a whole new industrial scale. Can you just talk a little bit about how you conceptualized App Harvest and was there any influence uh, with what was being done uh, over in Europe? And uh, where do you think that you'll be applying what lessons have been learned uh, over there to what you're seeking to uh, to do here. And then also just speak a little bit to the scale because it's very impressive uh, what you've done today on, on, on the size of the facility. Well, um, yeah, the, the Netherlands has, has been very instrumental in setting us up for success. I mean, really the, the country and, and as a whole, we, we've met with many government leaders there, uh, many leaders in the private sector as well, as well as uh, universities and education institutions. Um, anyone that is looking uh, more broadly at agriculture and, and looking for solutions that that uh, that are out there to solve many of the problems in the world, it, a lot of those are in, in the Netherlands right now. And so uh, our company has, has really taken what's at the, you know, what's possible over there and gone to the cutting edge uh, and, and really pulled that back to to the U.S. and deployed it in our region in Central Appalachia. But you know, as far as how we got started, uh, I I grew up in Kentucky, but uh, spent about ten years in, in New York and D.C. Uh, before starting App Harvest. And and I was a part of my background was building large scale uh, renewable energy projects, so wind and solar. And I was a part of building some of the largest solar projects in the U.S. Uh, so that that experience and sustainable project development uh, in the energy world, uh, bringing that over to agriculture, uh, where we're we're using uh, different technologies, but but at scale, uh, building controlled environment agriculture facilities to to grow a fruit and vegetable uh, more efficiently, um, and and founded the company while NDC uh, moved ultimately back to Kentucky pretty quickly after starting the company and and being in dc provided a really wide lens on what was happening in agriculture both domestically here in the u.s and then 
internationally outside of the U.S. and and you start to see the problems um, that are plaguing agriculture today, and, and you realize that that we're not going to have a choice. We have to use infrastructure. We have to use technology. Uh, we have to rebuild farming uh, to to use far less land, far less water, uh, and get far more production. And and uh, what's happening in Holland right now is is an example of what's possible. The uh, I I agree with you that ag is at an inflection point. What what's unclear is where we are in that inflection point. For some time, the controlled ag environment has sort of been on the the fringes, right? Uh, uh, there's always sort of been a, a cottage industry of platforms. Uh, preparing uh, their ag production either through vertical farming or through uh, greenhouses. But recently, it just seems as if there's more attention uh, being given to the space, you and a few other uh, uh, entities. Well, why, do, why do you think that is? Has, has the model, I mean, you're coming from a developer background on solar, you know, for the longest time, it was challenged with its economics uh until the technology really improved and the storage of such improved is is the model that you're looking at it has it been able to demonstrate that it, unlike past endeavors uh in controlled agriculture this is this is going to be economically uh efficient yeah I, well where we're building has, has a lot to do with um uh, how we're building and where we're building has a lot to do with the economics of our model. Um, so central Appalachia, eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, that kind of corridor that was really known as coal country in the U.S., it can get to about 70% of the U.S. in a one-day drive. So, so if you look at fruit and vegetable production today that's being grown in Mexico uh, or even California, it's sitting two weeks a couple thousand miles on a on a truck before it makes it to a consumer's plate, and we can get that down to a one day drive. That 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 efficiency and distribution uh, absolutely uh, hits the bottom line, and, and, and is is one reason why we can be competitive today with uh, open field agriculture that's coming in from Mexico. Um, another reason would be we have some of the lowest land costs in the U.S. We have some of the lowest utility and electricity costs. Uh, We're able to run our facility completely on recycled rainwater. Our region is getting wetter as much as the U.S. is getting drier. Uh, We had five of our wettest years on state record in the last 25 years. So we're we're using that that water, that rainfall, uh, to completely uh, run our facilities. All this goes into a price per pound of the fruit and vegetable. And then at the end of the day, you mentioned earlier in in the beginning here, you mentioned scale. It's all about economies of scale. So building some of the largest facilities in the world, uh, it's it's very similar to the solar industry when people said, well, solar is not price competitive. No, solar is price competitive. It depends on how you build the project, where you build the project, and how big of a project you built. So, you know, my my prior experience building large-scale solar uh, built um, was a part of building several facilities uh, for the U.S. military under the last administration, and we could not raise the prices 
uh, of electricity for the military. So we had to be at or below pricing. Well, how do you do that? You do that by building really big. So you get your material costs lower, your unit economics uh, on a per acre goes down the bigger you build. So same thing with us is it also depends on where you're putting the facility. We're putting a facility, you know, these, these uh, controlled ag facilities in a perfect location just on about any metric. So again, with land, utility costs, with distribution, and, and with the rainfall, but then we're building really big, which gets our, our costs for the steel, our costs for lighting, all of that is a lower cost because we're buying in bulk. Um, so, so again, it's, it, it's, there's a lot of different ways to, to build these facilities, but, in, and, and to make a kind of big generalization of, you know, where is controlled ag today versus, uh, looking at other industries, I would say we, there's a far, we're, we're in the first inning. I just got off an investor call right before. Uh, this interview with you with with one of the uh, larger investors in our in our pipe transaction that that we uh, recently signed. Um, we all see this as the first ending of controlled agriculture. That, but in many ways, we have a leg up to some of these other sectors because today there's no subsidies, and this and what we're doing uh, can be profitable almost right out of the gate. Whereas you look at the other industries, and even wind and solar, heavily subsidized. Uh, you know, look at the 30% federal investment tax credit that um, that was in place and, and continues to be in place, um, heavily subsidizing wind and solar to make it price competitive with conventional energy. You look at electric vehicles that you've got state mandates and, and state subsidies. You also have federal subsidies that props that industry up. Controlled ag doesn't have any of that today, and it's already to a point to where it's competitive with conventional. Um, so you, you could make the case that that we're in the first inning of controlled ag, but but we might have you know, a leg up on how quickly the industry can accelerate just based on where the economics are at today. Then if there's any lever in D.C. that ever comes, which it, it's probable, it, it's certainly, we're not betting our business on it, but it's certainly, uh, you can make a strong argument that there'll start to be subsidies in this industry, in which in that case, it, it, it would accelerate uh, just rapidly overnight. And and so I would say if you look at, at renewable energy 20 years ago in the U.S., it was a boutique industry uh, that, that was not widespread. You look at electric vehicles 10 years ago, Tesla was the only automotive company to be on a public exchange you look at this year alone, there's been 12 electric vehicle manufacturers go public via SPAC just this year alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we're in kind of that third wave of sustainable infrastructure where, you know, first it was renewable energy with solar, wind and solar. Then it was an automotive um, with EVs. And then now you're looking at a controlled act today and, and kind of the third wave of, of sustainable infrastructure. Thanks for that. That's, that's very interesting how important the location really plays a role and, and scale mitigates the concerns. I think what was an impediment for this business model, there were two impediments, right? 
uh, in my mind. Uh, one was the technology hadn't yet reached a point where it was able to have the yield um, uh, be reached uh, economically. So for the vertical farming, it was challenged by LED lights, but that technology on the LED side seems to be uh, advancing very quickly. Um, but also just the sheer competition coming from uh, Mexico, uh, especially as it relates to tomatoes and, uh, and just the order of magnitude of, of cost being so much lower. Um, are, are you seeing an, that market size of what's being brought in from Mexico is about, you know, from what I've seen on just some research on the Internet, you know, it's about $2 billion worth of produce coming in from Mexico. You're going to be taking share from uh, from those growers, uh, some of whom uh, are U.S. based, but they grow their product just south of the border. Are you seeing any kind of reaction from the conventional side uh, uh from what you're looking to do, any irrational price behavior? Uh, no, I would say I, I just don't think it's it's gotten there yet. I, it, it's possible, um, but there's already a floor pricing agreement that's in place with Mexico, so there's only so low they can go on price. Um, and to your point, on, on you, you absolutely framed it right, where you know, our competition, unfortunately, either fortunately or unfortunately, how you look at it, is no one in the U.S. because we don't grow fruit and vegetables really at scale in the U.S. anymore. I mean, there's there's California still grows leafy greens, but outside of that, we've we've shifted much of our fruit and vegetable production down south of the border. Now, from a food security standpoint, a resiliency standpoint, and just not having our own fruit and vegetable production uh, it is incre- puts us in an incredibly vulnerable situation. So, um, four billion pounds of tomatoes were imported from Mexico to the U.S. last year alone. That was almost 1.2 billion pounds uh, 10 or 15 years ago. So we've seen the trend just really uh, move quickly on produce imports getting pushed down to, to below uh, below our border, and then the produce pushed back in. As far as pricing. Um, the other thing, on, I mean, the way to look at pricing is it can't go much lower than where it's at today. I mean, you, you've pushed so far down on price that there's nowhere, but really there's no room to go but up. So you look at Mexico and you say, and you're, you're talking about how just how much more cheaply they can produce the product. And, you know, that's that's a pretty controversial topic, which is, if our competition is illegal and you're not legally producing your product, should you even have a place on store shelves in the U.S. in the first place? So, I mean, that's ultimately our largest competitor has, you know, they're paying $5 a day for labor where people are working 12-hour days, have no paid time off, have no health care, in many cases underaged using illegal chemicals two and three times a week that you might be able to use once a year in the U.S. And then that's our competition on who we have to compete on with price. And in many other industries, it doesn't matter what you're importing. If it's a car or what it is, you you have to meet certain requirements to legally produce that product or you don't get on the store shelf of a Fortune 500 company. And right now in agriculture, 
you know, we're also in that infancy of where is agriculture in the world going and what are going to be the standards in which people have to operate. But it's very reminiscent of the energy industry and there's precedent for it. You know, you, you look at even coal operators in the U.S. that operated decades ago uh, and had many of these same issues as to how they produced um, their product. They eventually got regulated to a point where you had to legally operate. You couldn't illegally operate and then still sell your product. Um, we're in the infancy of, you know, where agriculture is headed. And that's not just from a technology standpoint. It's also from just an ESG standpoint of, of how are you operating the farm? Uh, and, and you can't, I mean, consumers and regulators are pushing back uh, harshly and quickly. And that at some point you have to think that, yes, this is where pricing is today, you know, but this pricing is not factoring in what it takes to actually produce the product. Uh, and, and yes, we're going to compete on price today. We don't want consumers' prices going up and we're not going to raise our prices uh, for, for what we're selling. But we also think we have an advantage medium to long term that it's going to be very difficult for, for a lot of the incumbents operating uh, outside of the country. Uh, it's going to be hard for them to keep their pricing where it is today as they get more pressure from regulators and consumers. Thanks for that. I, I didn't realize that you make a good point about the prices really can't go much lower. Um, the other the other point about food security, I think that's really gotten heightened attention um, given the the coronavirus. I've got you know relationships that, uh, uh, in the space that really had to reposition their business model. They they were exposed to food service and retail um, uh, or both. How how has the the shift of the supply chain from food service? When I say food service, I mean restaurants uh, buying product uh, and more consumers now purchasing their their consumption food consumption from grocers. How has that shift in the supply chain uh, uh, affected how you thought you might be rolling out uh, your products? Uh, it's it's right. It's rapidly accelerated. Or the timeline of all of our plans. Um, COVID has been, you know, terrible in many ways. I mean, the only silver lining there might be is that coming out of COVID in a post-COVID world, that we just we were much more diligent in long-term thinking, how to build more resiliency uh, into into you know, critical sectors like energy, healthcare, and and uh, food and agriculture and. Unfortunately for us, yeah, we our governor um, brought us in early. We did a joint announcement with our governor here in Kentucky. Uh, the vulnerability of the food supply was very real. Uh, our politicians here were concerned on whether or not we were going to even have fresh food on the store shelves because we don't produce food uh, here in the U.S. like we used to at scale um, as it relates to fruit and vegetables. So, yeah, it, it was a real concern, and, and um, we we definitely saw a, a tremendous uptick in interest, not only on the political side, but ultimately from the demand side. You know, if you're a grocer right now, you look at what controlled ag solves for, and there's five, six, seven, eight different things. One is 
uh, import. So if you're producing it here in the U.S., you, you don't have that import risk. Uh, you have the climate control aspect, so you can produce year-round. It doesn't matter you know, what the climate is or what the weather patterns are outside. You can control that environment on the inside. Uh, the food safety aspect is incredibly important. You look at the food recalls that continue to you know, plague uh, the leafy green industry. It, it's a problem that's only getting worse um, as there's not, as I was talking earlier, not the proper protocols in place on these farms where fruits and vegetables are being produced. Uh, so you have you know, foodborne outbreak that's happening at a grocer. You don't have any of that with a controlled environment. Uh, facilities. So if you're growing the fruit and vegetable in a controlled environment, you won't see those those food uh, foodborne outbreaks. So we we solve for just a lot of different problems that the grocers have related to you know, vulnerabilities in their food supply. Um, and COVID has really just highlighted uh, highlighted those problems even more and made it uh, for us a pretty easy. You know, what was messaging our industry prior to COVID, I think there's an inflection point that this industry might look at, and there's you know, pre-COVID and post-COVID as it relates to controlled ag. And, and I, you know, we, we definitely feel the difference that, you know, coming out of COVID and this industry solves for so many problems we saw in our supply chain that I'm not sure, you know, once you see those problems, you can't unsee them. Uh, and, and there's no doubt that the industry is going to continue to take off. The only question is, how quickly is it going to take off and, and, and what scale? But we all know at this point that there's no there's no rolling back at this point. And it's just how quickly is the industry going to move coming out of COVID? What kind of labeling are you are you able to have for um, uh, for your product? Are they going to be delivered in 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 clamshells or how, how do you we're going to experience the tomato the first set of agriculture production that's going to come offline and into the, the to the retail chain. So we'll be selling our tomatoes here within a couple of weeks, month or so. Our first products are beef steak tomatoes and tomato on the vine, two large imports from Mexico. Uh, strong reason as to why we're growing them here. Um, and you'll see the app harvest name uh, on on all the, the products coming coming out of our facility. So we should be able to Get you some photos here in the coming weeks, and, and you'll see uh, you'll see the app person. As far as whether or not we're being labeled organic or not, we we've elected not to get the organic certification. Um, we wanted to try to make it incredibly clear to the consumer that that our competition is really you know, the dirty pieces of agriculture that are out there operating, and we want to ally and be supportive of organic farmers which is really a small segment of agriculture. And we really want to go after the, the large, you know, dirty piece of agriculture that has no place on store shelves where they're, they're using harsh chemicals uh, and questionable uh, operating practices. So, so we, we've elected just to sell under a, a conventional label um, and hopefully people, consumers will be able to recognize the app harvest name and uh, understand that, yes, they're, they're spending about the same on a fruit and vegetable, but they get a lot of added benefits uh, with our product. So that that takes some education and, and improved insight on behalf of the consumer. Are, are you looking to build a brand around App Harvest so that the consumer goes to the store and actively seeks out App Harvest, or 
uh, is there some other strategy that you're seeking to get shelf space from the conventional side? Yeah, no, we, uh, you know, we put Martha Stewart on our board, um, the CFO of Impossible Foods, David Lee, has joined our board. Uh, and, you know, we're moving from a technology infrastructure, sustainable development company to an operator that has a brand. And, and you know, we absolutely plan on building that that name recognition over time. It's, it's not something that's going to happen uh, just overnight, but uh, we, we've already got a lot of momentum with increased interest uh, nationally for, for what we're doing. And, and we think, again, the industry itself is going to move and, and we'll be one player, a part of the industry, but uh, consumers have shown that they care about where their food is coming from. They don't want the chemicals on their food. They care about the labor practices being used to produce the food, less water, less land. So, so consumers are craving you know, these types of products, and then, then it's ultimately our job to just make it aware with the consumer of how we're producing our product and and uh, what we're doing to, to get it on store shelves. One of the benefits of what you're doing is, you know, in the controlled environment world, theoretically, you should have more crop cycles than if you were reliant upon the weather. Um, how many times do you expect to turn your your production in uh, in, in 365 days? Well, the the vines themselves, the tomato, to, to let you just get like get some insight onto the tomato plant itself. So we get 30 times yield per acre than an open field farm. So our 60 acres that we built, which is 2.8 million square feet, our first facility, um, that. That will do roughly 1,500 to 1,800 acres of what an open field would do in California. Now, that doesn't factor in food waste, which you lose about 40% of fresh fruit and vegetables in the U.S. going to landfill. Um, so that would be 2,500 to 3,000 acres. So to, to get to your point, uh, the tomato plant that we plant in our facility, the vine will get up to about 45 feet. So we're growing vertically. Wow. Uh, now that's not completely up. We end up wrapping the vines over time, uh, but we're harvesting fruit every day uh, that the plant is. So after after a, a series of weeks, uh, eventually um, you, you see the fruit on the plant, which is the tomato. And then as as the plant is growing, uh, we're wrapping the vines and 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 harvesting uh, for the duration. Um, so, so we're sending out product every day. Well, I look forward to following your your progress. I think it's exciting what you're doing, and uh, I look forward to meeting you in person once the uh, the pandemic uh, fades away. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Appreciate the time and interest. This discussion has been brought to you by the Agribusiness Advisor Podcast, sponsored by National Securities Corporation, a full service investment banking firm member FINRA. Please stay tuned for future conversations with leadership in the agribusiness sectors. If you have comments, questions, please feel free to reach out and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you and here's to next time.